Assalamu alaikum. My name is Salim Qasim. I'm the chief editor of the Muslim Vibe and your host for this week's podcast. This week I'm joined by Sheikh Azhar Nasser. Sheikh Azhar was born and raised in Michigan and has a degree in cultural anthropology from the University of Michigan. After completing his academic studies, he pursued his religious studies at a seminary in the city of Najaf in Iraq. In November 2017, Sheikh Azhar became a hit on social media with his witty and engaging content. He recently authored a book entitled The Grand Tour, Quranic Descriptions of Paradise. Before I begin my chat with him, a quick word from our sponsor, Wahid Invest. Wahid helps you become a halal investor in minutes. Clients from over 40 states have already started their journey with us. Here's how it works. First, we ask you eight simple questions to recommend a portfolio based on your risk profile. You then select your portfolio and simply sign up online. Your account can be approved in seconds. After you fund your account, we'll place the trades for you. All you have to do then is sit back and monitor your performance. It actually is that easy. Assalamu alaikum, Sheikh. Alaikum assalam. Thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Um, I think for those of you that don't know you, um, you came to, I guess, my attention, funny enough, last year in November um, on, on social media, on Twitter. And your Twitter account, um, I think, has some quite unique content in terms of the fact that you kind of post up questions and, I guess, responses also to um, things that you've had from people with regards yeah. to, you know, you mentioned Fajr, for example, and, and, and all of that kind of stuff. How did that all start? Because I think it's quite unique also to experience and see a sheikh online yeah. um, being quite, I guess, comical, but also still quite hard hitting at the same time yeah um how did it all start for you so back in uh in november of last year i got a question from someone who basically asked me you know sheikh i'm having a lot of trouble waking up for for salat al-fajr and this person you know was a friend of mine so i knew i knew this person on a personal level and i i decided to give them unorthodox advice you know typically when people ask for spiritual guidance you know you refer them to a verse in the quran to a hadith but this time i felt that there was a need to be relatable there's an there was a need just to be you know straight up to be real yeah. so i told this person that you know you need to you know stop watching netflix until until 3 a.m you know perhaps you know stopping that will make things a lot easier for you so I think in that moment you know so I decided to share that on on social media you know so you know Sheikh you know how can I start waking up for Salat al-Fajr and my answer was you know perhaps you know uh, not staying awake until 3 a.m. watching Netflix will improve your situation so when I posted you know that unorthodox answer you know just the relatability the practicality of the advice resonated with people you know the fact that you know there's someone who's wearing the imam wearing the turban who who knows about netflix who probably watches netflix yeah. really resonated with people and it just made them it kind of it shattered that misconception that scholars are holier than thou they're religious when i think it's it's the sunnah of the holy prophet to be relatable you know to be practical so the combination of humor relatability practicality and and just always having like an underlying message i think uh i think um you're right that i think it's it's very novel and it's very different to to see a sheikh wearing the turban 
um, being that kind of accessible and relatable in terms of, of connecting with people. Um, but I think with that also comes a bit of the kind of negativity around it. And, and yeah. I've seen, for example, looking through your tweets, the kind of responses you get. And even when, when we posted up the articles, I initially did a roundup of, of some of your kind of funniest tweets or your best tweets from the, from the early days, let's call them. Yeah. Um, you were on about 7,000 followers. You've now grown to, I think, about 50,000. So it yeah. seems that there is this huge desire and people do enjoy consuming this kind of content. And it's very well balanced in terms of the fact that you present um, more serious content alongside it as well and, and you're able to engage with people and, and talk about things like depression for example yeah. which is fantastic but then um, I guess one of the main criticisms that I've seen is is people asking the question that should a sheikh be behaving in, in such a manner or presenting themselves in such a manner on social media Yeah. Um, so how would you respond to that? You know I, th I think it's unfortunate that that people associate religiosity with with rigidness you know I, I think it's it's unfortunate that there's this idea that if you're a scholar and I don't I mean I don't consider myself a scholar I consider myself a student of knowledge but a cleric it's sad that people have this impression that a cleric should always be serious shouldn't make jokes shouldn't laugh shouldn't have you know a comical outlook on certain aspects of life because that is not the sunnah of the Holy Prophet. It's not how the Prophet conducted himself. You know, the Prophet laughed at things. The Prophet used to joke around with people. The Prophet made people feel joyful. So I think, you know, what I'm doing is actually not novel. You know, the reality is having a sense of humor, joking, you know, not taking yourself too seriously is actually a revival of the sunnah of the Prophet. You know, the Prophet was known for having a sense of humor, making jokes, making people feel happy. You know, people never felt, you know, that holier-than-thou complex when they were interacting with the Holy Prophet. Mm. So I think it stems from ignorance. You know, I think that people, unfortunately, have this assumption that, that if you're a scholar... You, you know, you, you can't joke around. You can't laugh about things. When the reality is that, you know, part of being religious is to have a sense of humor, is to joke, is to laugh, is to be, and it's, it's part of being human. I mean, there's a reason why smiling and laughing is contagious. It's part of human nature. So I think if you strip that away, and I, and I really believe that's how people become radicalized. I think that if, if you don't, if you can't laugh at yourself, if you can't laugh at, the events that are unfolding around you, I think you can potentially become radicalized. I think the, the joking and the laughing and the humor... Now, of course, if you're laughing all the time and you're joking all the time, that's problematic. You have to be a balanced human being. But if, I, don't, I think if you don't have the ability to laugh and joke and smile and be lighthearted, I think that you can potentially be radicalized. I mean, I've, I've yet to meet a radical... Who has a sense of humor you know so i think that you know you know perhaps you know joking around being lighthearted, is a way that we can kind of you know combat the extremism and the radicalization of, uh, of uh, certain uh, muslims and looking at the, the the human element that you're talking about um i think one thing that's definitely apparent i guess is that along with all of the, the followers and, and the well-wishers and the people that enjoy engaging with your content, um, there are 
there is the hate that you receive yeah. online. And I think aside from from being uh, a student of, of the religion, how do you deal with that on a very personal level? Because I'm sure there are very nasty things that are said and attacks launched at you and whatever else. How do you deal with that? Well, you know, with the notoriety, obviously, always comes that side of things. Of course. Um, and how have you kind of dealt with that? You know, it's it's difficult. You know, you know, at the end of the day, we're we're human beings. You know, if you get insulted, even if it's you know on social media and it's you know someone who you've never met, you know, when people make insulting remarks, it, it hurts you. You know, people have made very very hurtful comments, so. You know, when, when it starts happening on a daily basis, it affects you. I mean, I would be lying if I told you that, oh, it's easy. I just brush it off. I ignore it. No, I mean, you do take it personally. It's difficult not to take it personally yeah. when the attacks are so personal. And when people, you know, you know, use inflammatory rhetoric, you know, who, who know nothing about you, but make these sweeping accusations. So it took a little bit of time for me to just adjust to that type of scrutiny and that type of criticism and 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 just the hate but i i always reminded myself that you know the prophet had it a lot worse you know anyone and if you look at the prophets that are mentioned in the quran we have prophets that were stoned you know the prophet was stoned when he was you know preaching in ta'if imam ali ibn abi talib alayhi salam was cursed from the pulpits so you know you're always going to you know, the negative attention is always going to be there. But, you know, you have to always remind yourself that, you know, of what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, you know, that if, you know, ignorant people try to engage you and try to, you know, use offensive language, you know, you just, you don't engage them. You just ignore them and you just, you know, try to drown it out with, with positive output. You know, so... You know, it, it took me a long time to train myself just to ignore it. You know, just to remind myself that, listen, this is out there. And the fact that, I mean, the reality is, if you're, I mean, that's a sign of success, right? If you're only receiving praise, that's when you should really be concerned. Yeah. I mean, the reality is, you know, the movers and the shakers of the world, you know, they had, uh, they had adversaries. So you just got to take that as an indication that you're doing something right, you know. Of course. And what's the ultimate um, goal, I guess, with, with your online activity? And also, how much time, how much of your time does it take up? Because we're, we're going to go on to talk about the, the book that, you're, um, that you've, you've just written. Yeah. Um, and, and how do you find the time to balance replying to the haters? And, um, well, obviously, I'm assuming you don't reply to many of the haters, yeah. but how, how do you find the time to balance, you know, being online and being on Twitter and engaging with people and... and studying and writing and lecturing and everything yeah. else that you do so you know i have i have an organization called tasneem institute which i established last year and a lot of my time is just spent on research and i i really see social media as as a platform for me to share you know my research you know so i i have a, a program called quran weekly where you know i basically choose a verse of the Holy Quran, you know, that I came across that week that I felt was very profound or inspirational. And I share a brief reflection. So, you know, I'll share that on, on social media, a hadith that I've come across. You know, the, my goal, you know, is to basically reconnect the youth to their religious tradition because there's so much negativity out there. And you meet a lot of youth who just are so disenchanted 
who are embarrassed to identify themselves as Muslims because of all of the Islamophobic rhetoric. So I think, you know, this is my humble attempt to reconnect people that have felt alienated from the religious tradition by sharing with them the beauty of Islam that never makes it, you know, on the cover of a magazine, that doesn't make it to the, to the media outlets. To really, you know, rediscover the beauty of their faith. You know, if, if you know, one little tweet or one, you know, short clip can inspire, you know, a Muslim anywhere in the world to, you know, perhaps pick up the Qur'an and, and, and study it. And not just believe what you hear about the, the Islamic religion. Not, you know, you, you don't basically just digest everything that other people are telling you about Islam. That you are going to take the initiative. You're going to be proactive and actually study it for yourself. Yeah. So, you know, that's my goal, to just share the beauty of Islam, you know, the aspect of Islam that is unfortunately not getting, you know, the media attention. And that really is the ultimate goal, just to kind of, you know, remind people that you have a lot to be proud of, you know. Islam, you know, contributed a lot to, uh, to human civilization. And it still has a lot of potential to continue making positive contributions, so, you know, we shouldn't look at the religion of Islam as something that, you know, is connected to the, the Middle Ages, that's something of the past. I think Islam, the Muslim community, has a lot to offer. And I think that the Quran serves as really a source of, uh, of inspiration. I think that, interestingly, beyond even looking at Islam as something from the Middle Ages and then our life today as being contemporary, I think we have in the West at least a sort of compartmentalization of like, okay, this is my university, college, working life. This is my mosque life, and this is my family life. Yeah. And there isn't that kind of merging of our of yeah. our worlds. And we're kind of one person here, we're another person here, and yeah. another person here. And what I really like about um, you know what you're doing on Twitter, for example, is that you're you're there dressed, and you've, you're clearly uh, you know a man of the religion in the fact that you're wearing a turban, and you're not kind of shying away from that yeah. fact. Your your name says Sheikh, yeah. but it's kind of very relatable content, and I think that's quite um, it's quite bold, and I think that's why it's also worked so well because all of a sudden people are seeing the fact that okay, you can um, be a student of the religion, you can give lectures and you can also be engaging you can be funny and, and you can be relatable and, and you can enjoy life yeah you know you know and another thing that i would also add is that unfortunately islam has been presented to the world as an alternative to western culture yeah and i think that's very dangerous you know i think that you're doing a disservice to humanity and to the religion of islam by telling you know, youth, for example, that the religion of Islam is an alternative to Western culture. I mean, I consider myself as American as, as apple pie. I never felt that Islam wanted me to relinquish my culture. Because, I, I mean, I wasn't born in Iraq. I wasn't born in the Middle East. Yeah. You know, I identify myself as an American. I have more in common with, with Americans. And therefore... Islam has to be presented not as not as an alternative to Western culture or to Eastern culture, but rather it's an enhancement of your culture. Islam doesn't want you to give up your culture. Islam doesn't want you to be, you know, uh, to be, you know, to relinquish your identity as an American or as a Brit. But rather, Islam 
enhances whatever culture you belong to. It says take the positives and drop the uh, the negative aspects of your culture. See, this is exactly why we launched the Muslim Five because yeah. I think we're at a time in in history where we've reached a critical mass of second and third generation yeah. migrants that are now. I was born in the UK. You were born in America. Um, we haven't yet perfected a sort of Western Muslim narrative. Yeah. And and having that kind of dual identity, we're still conflicted. Growing up, I was conflicted. Um, I don't know about yourself, but I know many people that have had conflicts growing up trying to understand and reconcile. Because you feel like you have to choose. No, exactly. Yeah. No, and, and as I said, it's like being one person. So I would yeah. speak with a bit more of a kind of Indianish accent with my parents yeah. than how I would speak at school. Yeah. That kind of thing. And, and it was subconscious. And it was only when my dad came to watch me play sports at school and someone pointed out to me like why are you talking funny when I was talking to my dad and I realized that hang on I, I didn't realize I was doing that and and that was like a very micro thing but it made me realize that even I was kind of conflicted and wasn't quite one person everywhere I'm kind of a different person yeah. everywhere we go and and so it's it's a time I think where if we get this wrong it's going to be this kind of either Islam or the West yeah, type thing. Yeah. And, and we need people like yourself and I guess organizations and platforms like the Muslim Vibe and, and the many others out there that are doing it to really be at the forefront and push this kind of, I guess, amalgamation of, of various different elements. Yeah. You know, I know I'll, I'll give you a simple example you know, of, of this dilemma that, that you've mentioned. You know, in, in our communities, if someone wants to become Muslim, yeah. You know, say it's you know an American guy, right? Born in the U.S. Say, say for, for the sake of an, the example, say his name is Fred. Yeah, and he wants to become a Muslim. What do we usually do? You know, he 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 takes his shahada. The first thing that we do to him change is what we name. change his name. <laughs> you know, Fred. No, no, you got to change your name. You're not Fred anymore. Yeah. You know, we'll change your name to Muhammad or to Ali or. Why do you need to do that? Yeah. Why can't he just be Fred? Because the reality is, it's the person. That beautifies the name. Yeah, the name Muhammad. I mean, having Islamic names is fine, mm. but there's nothing un-Islamic with Fred. He doesn't need to wear a dishdash. He doesn't need to wear a thobe. We, Let him wear his trousers. We, we had a really interesting article on this topic, which was looking at the Arabization of Islam, almost right, which, yeah. which was talking about the fact that when people convert to the religion, they have to adopt the Arab culture to fit in. And, and as you said, and, and um, we had the guy who was writing the article was talking about the fact that he wanted to hold on to his name because it was something his parents gave him and he respected his parents. Yeah. And people asking him to change his name constantly almost like de detracted him and deterred him away from the religion. And, and this is the unfortunate uh, impact that I think born Muslims have on converts in that we yeah. kind of think that our understanding of the world and, and our, our upbringing is the way that things have to be yeah um, and it's because we don't have this this western muslim perspective so to speak and it's interesting that you know you know many of us come from parts of the world that were colonized mm. and sometimes subliminally we do the same thing to converts we impose our way of life on them in the same way that you know colonialist powers imposed and really eradicated our culture we're doing that to yeah. newcomers to the faith. No, 100%. Um, we could, we could, I guess we could keep talking about this, it seems, till, yeah. <laughs> till the end of time. But um, I wanted to talk about the book that you've recently written. Uh, it's called The Grand Tour, uh, Quranic Descriptions of Paradise. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but 
I can't recall any books in English that, that specifically focus on paradise. Yeah. Um, what made you pick such a topic and, and what's the book about generally? You know, so so one of the reasons is because, it, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer that if you're going to write a book, it better be something that's original, right? I don't believe in just writing a book just for the sake of writing a book. You know, I was amazed, you know, so you, when you go online, you know, paradise in the Quran. Say, I mean, if someone wants to know, okay, what, what is the Quranic concept of paradise? Mm-hmm. There was no literature in the English language. And I was always interested in paradise because, you know, the Quran speaks a lot about paradise. And, you know, we as Muslims, you know, that's, that's essentially what we're working towards. You know, that is our destination. So I thought it was, it was pretty odd that we didn't have... You know, we didn't understand the concept of paradise. We didn't have, you know, uh, really comprehend the, the the nature of paradise. When in reality, all of all our efforts are being directed towards this goal. So I decided to write this book, you know, because I, I felt that there was a need to kind of fill that void because you know the, the literature just doesn't exist in English. Secondly, I mean, from my experience. When I used to go to the mosque, I always felt like the lectures were just always like doom and gloom. You know, you listen to the Molana, and it's always about the angel of death, what's going to happen in the grave. And I just always felt like it was depressing. So I decided to write something that's going to just lift people's spirits. Because, you know, life is difficult. You know, we hear so much negativity and it's always scare tactics. When you look at the Quran, it's interesting that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala actually delves into more detail when he speaks about paradise. About there, descriptions of about paradise. The descriptions itself. of paradise. Now okay. there are descriptions of hellfire, yeah. but comparatively there are more verses that describe paradise than there are verses that describe the hellfire, which is an indication that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is more eager to reward us than to punish us. So this book really was an attempt on my part to remind people, to remind myself and to remind Muslims and even non-Muslims that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the most merciful. And I think we tend to forget that. You know, people have this impression that God is vengeful, that God is just itching to punish you. Mm. When the reality is, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has 99 names. Yes, 99 names. And He chose Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim to be the two names. He chose two names out of the 99 names to be the names that He introduces Himself to us. And both Ar-Rahman and Ar-Rahim are derived from Rahman, which means mercy. So this book is really a reminder that God is more merciful than you can possibly imagine. And this life and all of its enjoyments and all of its pleasures represent only a small microscopic taste of the mercy of God, which, which will be manifested to a much further extent in the hereafter. I, I also um, I get the impression from my own personal kind of thinking that 
within the Muslim faith, unfortunately, we, we focus very much, as you said, on the on the fire and brimstone element of things. And even when it comes to the attributes of of, of God, um, there's there's two types, if I'm not mistaken, the Jamali and Jaladi yeah. um, sides of things. And when you compare our representation of God when it comes to, to lectures and, and all of that kind of stuff, often it is quite uh, negative. Yeah. And and when you contrast that to kind of the evangelical Christian approach, yeah. where it's all about God loves me, Jesus loves me, it's all so like welcoming and, and happy. Yeah. And I think we need to somehow find a way of, of finding a, a balance and, yeah. and a middle ground between... I guess between the two, to be between honest, because yeah. you don't want people to, to go to the extreme of just like, oh, anything I do, God's going to forgive me. But at the same time, you can't have people too scared to exactly. step out of line. And that's why we have a hadith about the idea that the believer is always between the the state of fear and hope. Hmm. A believer, no matter what, never loses hope in God's mercy. But at the same time, that believer... Is not going to feel too confident that oh for sure God yeah, is not yeah. going to punish me. Right? I think those there's, two are crucial: the fear and hope. 100%. There's there's that balance between fear and hope. And um, without giving too much away, but feel free to. Who's going to heaven? I think that's what everyone wants to know. Who's actually going to qualify? You know, number one, I don't think any human being has the right to answer that question, because, you know, people always ask. Mm. Are, are non-Muslims going to go to paradise? Yeah. I think at the end of the day, we have to remind ourselves that God is just. God is fair. God is not going to punish you know, someone who was ignorant, you know, who didn't have access to the truth. Who was, you know, there, there might be non-Muslims out there who came to certain conclusions and they were sincerely you know, seeking the truth, but they got it wrong. They got it wrong. But they didn't have any rebelliousness in them. They didn't hurt other people. Yeah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, is just. He's merciful. In fact, there are a lot of people, the Quran even speaks about mustaf'afin. You know, people who just, you know, they're they're not believers, but they're also not kufar. They're not disbelievers. Because, to be a, because the word kafir means to cover up the truth. So when you say that this person is a kafir, you're essentially saying that this person knows the truth, but is knowingly rejecting the truth because of arrogance, because of rebelliousness. Can you really say that with full confidence about anyone? I mean, it's, it would be difficult. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows what's in the hearts of the people. And I would, I would argue that the vast majority of people will ultimately end up in paradise. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is merciful. I think if, you know, you know, there will be certain individuals that will be in the hellfire, but the majority of people, I think, will end up in paradise. Because, you know, again, God's mercy is, is beyond... You know, there's even a hadith from Imam Ali salam where he says, God's mercy will be so vast on the Day of Judgment, that even Satan on the Day of Judgment, will anticipate divine mercy. So this goes to show you that, you know, you know, there's a hadith that says that there are, there are eight gates to paradise and there are seven to hellfire, which means that the, the paths to paradise are more than the roads to the hellfire.
That's a, <laughs> a lot to process. Um, and with regards to um, descriptions of heaven, of paradise, um, I've always understood them to be uh, likened, you know, or paradise to be likened to an oasis and things like that. And the understanding that I've had is that, you know, that was a sort of metaphor that was appropriate for a for an Arabian society where it's hot and they like water and fresh things which don't often grow at places. Um, is that the case with the descriptions that we have in the Quran and in a hadith about paradise or is it actually a, a physical kind of yeah. reality? Uh, yeah. So, so two things. In any language, when you employ a word, when you use a word, the listener is always going to assume that you that you're referring to the literal meaning, al-ma'na al-haqiqi, the literal literal meaning, unless you provide an indication that you mean the metaphorical meaning. So I'll give you an example. If I say to you that I saw a lion, I use the word lion. You're going to if I say I saw a lion, you're going to assume that I mean the animal. Mm. Because that's how language works. When I use a word, your first assumption is that you mean the literal meaning. Unless I give you a contextual clue that, no, I don't mean the literal meaning. I mean the metaphorical meaning. So, for example, if I see, I saw a lion on the basketball court. Right? You know, we were playing a game, yeah. a pickup game, and there was a lion on my team. Talking about LeBron, LeBron James, right? Right, LeBron James, of course, right? <laughs> yeah. Now, if I use... If I use it like that, I've given you a contextual clue that I don't, when I use the word lion, I used it to mean the metaphorical meaning. Now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is speaking to us in the Arabic language. Therefore, when he uses words that are understandable to us, like jannah, like river, like trees, like fruit, we have to assume that the literal meaning is intended unless there's a contextual clue that the metaphorical meaning is intended. Now, you mentioned a good point. You know, paradise is described as a place where there are gardens and rivers. And the, the criticism of Orientalists is that, oh look, this is proof that the Quran was written by Muhammad. Because, you know, this is the paradise of a desert dweller. Mm. You know, when you're living in what we would call a sandbox, your fantasy, your paradise is what? Greenery and water. But the reality is, it is in the base nature of every human being to desire greenery and water. In fact, if you go online and you do a Google search of the top vacation destinations in the world what are you going to see you're always going to see green and blue trees and water it's in our fitra it's in our nature so paradise and i discuss this in detail in the book paradise is designed in a way that is compatible with the nature of the human being what we desire as human beings what what appeals to us as human beings and in in the course of your research, um, did anything in particular stand out? Like, was there anything that you saw that you were shocked about, or that you just weren't expecting? You know, 
what stands out, you know, so I'll mention a couple of things. You know, one is related to a verse in the Quran and the other is a hadith. So one of the things that really, that that's profound to me when I look at the Quranic descriptions of paradise is that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala lists the material blessings, the, the silk garments, the, you know, the palaces, the jewelry, the furniture. So he lists all of these things, but then Allah says, min Allahi akbar," That the pleasure of God is superior to all of this. Which means in paradise, what is actually going to be which what's actually going to give you the most pleasure is actually knowing that God is pleased with you. So for me, I mean, that represents, I mean, that's a spiritual reward mm. to gain the satisfaction and the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that is actually the ultimate uh, enjoyment in paradise. Now, the hadith that I want to share with you that actually, you know, amazed me. Yeah. You know, we know that paradise has levels, right? And divine justice dictates that not everyone is going to receive the same reward. It would be unfair for Allah to give, you know, Isa ibn Maryam salam, Jesus son of Mary, the same reward that he would give to an average believer. There's a hadith where Imam al-Sadiq salam, he says, he speaks about the person who occupies the lowest degree in paradise. So this is like, you know, basic cable, right? The basic lowest level in paradise. The Imam says, the lowest person in paradise. If all human beings and all jinn were to visit him, he would be able to host all of them, provide food and drink, and he would have enough space to accommodate them and nothing of what he possesses would decrease. This is the lowest person in Jannah. This is why the Quran reminds us that paradise is beyond. The reality of paradise is beyond your comprehension. So everything that we see in the Quran is just little glimpses, snapshots of the paradisal garden. I've also always, um, you mentioned the, the spiritual side of things. And I remember once having a discussion with someone about this. And, and I, I don't know where I picked up this notion, but you just kind of uh, mentioned it of, of that kind of euphoria um, that we'll experience um, just in connecting with, with God and being in proximity to God. And, and that's, you know, in the higher sort of rankings of heaven, it's mm. not about how much material you'll have, but more the spiritual connection and that yeah. closeness to God. Now, it, does that mean that at the lower stations it's more physical and it's more spiritual higher up like I, I go into detail in the book and there's definitely you know the higher you are in paradise yeah the more you partake in the spiritual delights you know and and it's it's a very detailed discussion but i speak about you know how you know just like in this life you know you have different different ranks of believers you have believers who find more joy in ibadah than you know them going to the beach, for example. And similarly in paradise, you have you know believers who are occupying the lower levels 
that are finding enjoyments in the physical delights, but the believers in the higher levels, they're, they're enjoying the physical delights, but for them, it's the spiritual rewards that are the most gratifying. And subhanAllah, Asiya, the wife of Pharaoh, understood this. Mm-hmm. If you look at her, her final dua, her parting words, you know, when she was being martyred, she says, and it's mentioned in the Quran, Rabbibni li indaka baytan fil jannah. The first part of her dua is what? Oh Allah, build for me a house near you in paradise. Notice, she doesn't just say build a house for me in paradise. She mentions a material blessing and a spiritual blessing. The material blessing is what? The house. She lived in a palace on earth with Pharaoh, but she says, I I want I don't want a palace in paradise. I, I I'll, I'll be satisfied with a house in paradise. Mm-hmm. But that house has to be indaka, in your proximity, in your presence. So in that, in those few words, she basically summarized the reality of paradise. It's a combination of material blessings and spiritual blessings. That's very, very deep. Um, well, <laughs> that's, that's, that's quite, uh, it's interesting. So that that, that you, you cover all of that in the book and you've looked at those. Yeah, I, I, I go into, uh, into great detail. I have, you know, there's, there's an entire, like chapter three of the book is dedicated to the material blessings of paradise. So what I've done is I collect all of the verses that speak about the material blessings and I provide commentary and analysis. And then chapter four is a discussion on the spiritual blessings of, of paradise. And where can uh, people get the book? Where, how can they get their hands on it? They have to come to my house. No, <laughs> no, no. The, it's available on Amazon. I'll post your address. Yeah, no way. Address, right? <laughs> That'll be great. So Amazon is available yeah, on Amazon. Just type in the Grand Tour, my name, okay. Amazon, and uh, it's available. So we can put the link, I guess, in the, in the description um, sure. to, this, to this thing. And... Um, with regards to just generally as well, uh, you're on Twitter. You're on all social media platforms. <coughs> I'm most active uh, on Twitter. That's okay. uh, yeah, that's really the place to go to. And if people want to find you on Twitter, how can they do that? Uh, my uh, my handle is at uh, Sheikh Azhar. S H A Y K H A Z H I R. And I think they should probably be wary about asking questions in case they get turned into a viral. Yeah, I might, tweet. I might, I might fry you, you know, publicly. So just be. Does that stop people asking you questions? No, no, no. no? Nothing stops them. Well, no, but because again, I don't mention names, so yeah. they're they're pretty. Uh, but I I have had people you know ask me and before they ask a question like Sheikh, please don't post this on. <laughs> so if they ask me, then you can't. I'll, I'll show them mercy and I'll just keep it confidential. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Um, so inshallah, next time you're in London, do come back and, and we can do this all again. Hopefully, with many more books that you've done, we can talk inshallah about. Inshallah, with your dog. Brilliant. Thank you very thank much. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for joining us on this week's podcast. And if you enjoyed the podcast, then please be sure to subscribe. And if you're feeling extra generous, give us a five star rating on the iTunes app. You can connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Muslim Vibe and join in the conversation using the hashtag TMV Podcast. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wahad helps you become a halal investor in minutes. Clients from over 40 states have already started their journey with us. Here's how it works. 
First, we ask you eight simple questions to recommend a portfolio based on your risk profile. You then select your portfolio and simply sign up online. Your account can be approved in seconds. After you fund your account, we'll place the trades for you. All you have to do then is sit back and monitor your performance. It actually is that easy.